Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, Lincoln Steffens was a uh, New York reporter in the early 20th century. He has been called America's greatest journalist. He was the founder of muckraking journalism, exposing scandals, exposing corruption in the name of the truth. In 1919, he visited the newly formed Soviet Union. Uh, not long after the Russian Revolution, he was shown around and he was shown some new model communities that had been founded in which property had been collectivized or pulled together and production was booming and people seemed happy in this new society, at least the people that Stephens met. And he returned to America full of enthusiasm about the Soviet Union and the new world order that it represented. After the horrors of the First World War, many people actually were yearning for something different and for the world to change. And Stephens believed that communism and revolution were the answer. And he wrote to a friend these words which became quite famous. I have seen the future and it works. He'd seen the Soviet Union and he believed it was the future and it was already working. He thought the whole world would be transformed by that vision. Now nearly a century has passed and we've seen what became of that epic experiment. With the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of Eastern European communism, we saw how systems that were designed to create justice and liberty can turn into a totalitarian regime that takes away those very things. 30 years after Stephens wrote those words, George Orwell wrote uh, these words. He kind of saw the writing on on the wall. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. But there is a better way. It is a kind of revolution, but it's not like any of those revolutions. Because it's not based on a theory. It's not based on a a political system, but it's based on a person. His name is Jesus Christ, King Jesus, Messiah. Followers of Jesus, or Christians as they became known, are called to a different way of life. And this way of life is so different at its core that it is revolutionary. But it is a bloodless, quiet revolution. And it is bottom-up from the people up, not top-down imposed from government. The Bible teaches that the kingdom of God came with Jesus Christ. But it's not here fully. And one day it will arrive in all its fullness and completion in a new creation. What Christians are called to do is live now, today, in such a way that people see our lives and say, I've seen the future and it works. It works. The most powerful argument that you have for the truth or falsity of Christianity is your life. Now these days many people are not interested in asking, is it true? Uh, They've become skeptical about grand truth claims. They're more interested in asking the question, does it work? Does it work? And therefore the character of the Christian community and the character of us as individuals will give them an answer. 
Now, almost 2,000 years ago, on the island of Crete, the situation was very similar. The gospel message had gone to Crete, some people had believed it, and they'd started to follow Jesus. So the apostle Paul left a man called Titus, who was a key part of his team. He left him on the island to establish new churches, to teach the word of God, and to develop leaders. It's a process called church planting. It means establishing new communities of light in a dark world so that the people witness God's future and say, it works. Now, like every culture, Crete had aspects of its culture that the gospel could affirm and aspects of its culture that needed to be challenged. And we find in chapter 2, the heart of the letter, laying out new teaching for new Christians. How are they to express their newfound faith in the world around them? What difference does it make at home? We thought about that last week. What difference does it make at work? That's what we're thinking about this week. And what we find in this chapter, through and through, is that your life matters, Christian friend. Your character counts. The dynamite claim that Paul makes here is that every aspect of our lives matters. The quality of our relationships, our, our self-control, our use of words, our attitude, our heart. It all matters because, Christian friend, your life is an advertisement for Jesus. It's an advertisement for Jesus. So Paul works it out in different spheres. He talks to older men in the church. He talks to older women, younger women, younger men. Each of them have peculiar challenges and and, uh, difficulties based on their life circumstances. And we saw last week that the character of a Christian person can beautify the message. Now, this week, I'm going to finish up uh, by learning something really striking. And it's this. Slaves were able to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Slaves. If you want to look with me, it's in verse 10. Uh, sorry, verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that, here's the purpose, in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, winsome, beautiful. Slaves can do that. Now just think about this for a moment. Slaves! Slaves! These are people at the bottom of the social spectrum. They have no freedom, as we understand it. They don't have what we would call basic human rights. They are at the beck and call of their masters. They can't join a union. They can't go to an employment tribunal. They can't quit. They can't get another job. If they're bullied, they just have to rough it. Yet Paul says they can bring glory to God by the way they work. It's an extraordinary thought. How much dignity Paul is giving to these men and women. He gives them the dignity of royal sons and daughters of God. They can beautify the message about Jesus by their work. Now, we're not slaves, at least not in the way that they were, but we can learn what grace looks like at work from this passage. And I want to share three points today. The first one is the reality of slavery, the reality of slavery, because as soon as we start to look at this passage, we hit a problem and we need to address it. Have a look with me again at verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Now, in the famous words of Tom Hanks, Houston, we have a problem. 
Does this mean that the Bible condones slavery? We need to face this question or the whole passage is going to seem really irrelevant and actually immoral. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that slavery in the ancient world was a complex reality. When we think about slavery, our minds go to North American or European chattel slavery. It was one of the worst evils in human history. It was often very cruel. It was based on enslavement of certain ethnic groups by other ethnic groups. It was oppressive. The only way out of slavery, most of the time, was death or escape. And there have been some extraordinary films made about slavery. Uh, a few years back, there was a film called 12 Years a Slave, a harrowing film, won three Oscars. And some years before that, another amazing film called Amistad, about a slave ship. So when we hear Paul saying, slaves be subject to your masters, you may be hearing him condoning that kind of oppression. But the reality in the ancient world of slavery was very different. It was not like African slavery as, as we think of it. Slaves were often the most educated people in the society. Many of them had the highest responsibilities in their social sphere. For example, most doctors were slaves. Now I know those of you who work, doctors who work in the NHS think, yeah, and we still are. <laughs> you take your cleverest slave, send him off to medical school, and then bring him back to work for you. In our world, successful people are often marked by being really, really busy. Just think of a high-achieving company CEO, or the tech entrepreneur, or the brilliant surgeon. They're usually working 80-plus hours a week. Doing long hours is a sign that you're important and you have influence. But in the ancient world, if you're important, you aspired to leisure. Why go to university and study hard for three, four, five years when you can send your slave? Why work hard running your business or your vineyard or your, your, your estate when you can educate your slave and let him do it? Why buy a dog and bark yourself? Now, there were different levels or jobs within slavery in the ancient world. Some of the slaves, as I've pointed out, were very highly educated, high levels of responsibility. They're still slaves. But the lowest job on the ladder were the slaves who had to wash people's feet. Now, when you realize there was no sewage system, and sewers were open in the streets, and people wore sandals, you can start to figure out why that was the lowest job on the rung. Slavery in the ancient world was often economically driven, not ethnically. You could sell yourself into slavery if you had no means of paying a debt. You could literally become a slave for a number of years and work off the debt. It's a bit like a mortgage with a repayment option. Other times, a master would um, show favor to a slave and set him or her free, give them money and help them to start out as a free person. So it wasn't necessarily... Uh, confining them for life. Now that gives you a clearer picture of what he's talking about when he talks to slaves here. But even within that context, we still have to say, I think, that slavery was against God's revealed will for humanity. Now the Bible is completely unique in the ancient world because it gave every single human being, regardless of who they were, every man, woman, and child, unique dignity and worth and equal value. Genesis 1-2 to 2 sets the foundations for the whole rest of the Bible. And in this section, we see God, the loving creator, making a beautiful, ordered world. 
And he makes humanity, and he sets them in his world, and he declares them that he's made them in his image. He's made them to reflect him to the world, male and female. He's made them in his image and likeness. They are to rule the world under God and serve him. So every single human being is a king and a priest, ruling the world, serving God. Now this was totally different to the rest of the ancient world, in which priests and kings were an elite class of people considered more valuable than anybody else, and they could get away with murder. So, you might be asking, why doesn't Paul come out here and argue against slavery if it is against God's revealed will? Because it was a fact of life. By some estimates, as many as a third of the people in the Roman Empire were actually slaves. For Paul to talk about ending slavery would be about as helpful as him talking about space travel. It was as likely that he could end slavery in the first century as he could go to the moon. The world had to travel a long way before conditions were right for slavery to be abolished. Paul has to work within the system. Trying to start a revolution would have ended the Christian church before you could say the words Roman army. But... Even though he can't start a revolution, Paul sows the seeds that led to the downfall of slavery in time. And the most powerful statement we have about slavery in the New Testament is a short letter called Philemon, which was read for us earlier. It's Paul's most personal letter. It's very direct. It's heart on sleeve. And it's a direct call to a friend called Philemon to live out the gospel in connection with somebody else, his slave, Onesimus. Philemon's the master. Onesimus is the slave, and somehow Onesimus has gone away, and he's met Paul, and he's become a Christian. And now he wants to go back, but he's scared. There's some relationship problem with Philemon, and we don't know the details. Some people think he may have stolen something. Some people think he may have run away, and now he realizes he should go back. We don't know what the real reason was, but the key to it is that Paul says the gospel, the good news, has now transformed your relationship. And here's the thing, here's the seed that would eventually lead to the downfall of slavery. This is what he writes to Philemon. Perhaps the reason he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. See what he's saying? Philemon, in your culture, you own Onesimus. He's your property. But you've now got him back forever because he's your brother in Jesus Christ. And he's very dear to me. Now that was radical. It sows the seeds that led to the downfall of slavery. Once you start thinking about your slave as your brother or your sister, you start to connect that to the Bible's teaching about being made in the image of God. You start to join the dots, and you get William Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury, and the Clapham sect, and Abraham Lincoln, and the abolition of slavery. But the Christian revolution is happening in an imperfect world. God's future is breaking in, but it's breaking in slowly, like a sunrise coming up. And we're called in the darkness, to shine like stars. You see, God doesn't just 
zap his children out of the world as soon as anybody believes in him. Imagine that. We were sitting here in church, and every time somebody trusted Jesus, they just disappeared. Boom, off they go. And they've gone. Trusted Jesus, got beamed up, gone home. They just vanished. Actually, God leaves you just where you are. In the inconvenience and the inconsistency and all the gray areas and all the grimy stuff and everything in your life that some of it you want to escape from, he's left you there to start shining like a star. And he does so for a reason, because we will bring him more glory that way than if we were beamed up. So that was the reality of slavery. What about the reality of work? The reality of work. Now, I want to get back to your lives for a moment, and I want to ask two questions to anyone here who works. And I'm thinking about work in the broadest possible sense of some kind of a meaningful activity that you do in society for somebody else. Uh, two questions. First one, how many people here actually love your job so much so that you are actually looking forward to going back to work tomorrow morning and you can't wait. Would you put your hands up, please? Wow, there are a few people. That's great. Now, the second question I want to ask is about your boss. Most of us here work for somebody else. It could be a line manager or a supervisor or a department head or a consultant or board of trustees. How many of you feel that your boss is absolutely fantastic and you love working for them? Hands up. <laughs> you liars. <laughs> Liz, hands not quite sure. <laughs> okay, not all of us. That's very interesting, isn't it? Turns out that many of us are not incredibly excited about our jobs or our bosses. But is it a surprise? I was talking to somebody in the church about this text yesterday, and he said, well, if you really don't look forward to going to your job and you basically feel it's drudgery, then aren't you a sort of a slave as well? Blur captured much of our experience at work in a great song called Arnold Same. Arnold Same awoke from the same dream in the same bed at the same time, looked in the same mirror, made the same frown. Felt the same way as he did every other day. Then Arnold Same caught the same train at the same station, sat in the same seat with the same nasty stain next to same old what's-his-name. On his way to the same place to do the same thing again and again and again. Poor old Arnold Same. Is work like that? What about the great Dolly Parton in the classic Nine to five. Where's Christina? I was going to ask her to come and sing. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five for service and devotion. You would think that I would deserve a fat promotion. Want to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. I swear sometimes that man's out to get me. They, just, they let you dream just to watch them shatter. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder. But you've got dreams they'll never take away. You're in the same boat with a lot of your friends, waiting for the day your ship will come in and the tide's going to turn and it'll going to roll your way. It's the reality of work for a lot of us. And let me tell you, I've lived the dream. One of my first jobs was for a, an organization called London Industrial Temps. My job 
was to stand at one end of a conveyor belt which had bars of soap coming down it, and there was a machine that stuck a label on the bars of soap. And my job was to peel the labels off and straighten them, on, straighten them up, eight hours a day. And why they didn't just get a machine that could stick them on straight, I don't know. <laughs> First person in my family to go to university, went to university, did English and American literature. What do you do with that? Got a job in a warehouse, picking up boxes, carrying them around, driving this thing called a pump truck with the crates on it. Six months, earned £8,000 a year. It was the most boring thing. I, I would get to work, clock in, and I'd wear my overalls, and I would wait as long as I possibly could before checking my watch. And then I would look at it, and it was still only 9 o'clock. <laughs> it was so boring. My next job was even worse paid. I went and worked in a bookshop. was there for even longer. Then I got my break, telephone sales. Selling subscriptions over the phone. I spent four years selling databases in an office that was exactly like the office, but less funny. And the bosses, I've been bullied, I've been neglected, I've been micromanaged, I've been overworked, occasionally I've been inspired. And all of that at Grace Church. <laughs> it's a joke, joke. Now that's the reality of work. In some Christian teaching, when you hear people talk about work, it's all about creativity and changing the world. And that's good. Some people get to do that. But you know what? For most people in the world, and for most of history, there are very few job options, and work is drudgery. There's a fantastic book by a man called Malcolm Gladwell about the nature of success. And he talks about South, southern China and rice farming. Rice farming. Some of you guys will know about this. Um, the whole family would plant the seeds in a specially prepared seed bed. After a few weeks, the seedlings would be transplanted into the field in carefully spaced rows six inches apart and then painstakingly nurtured. Weeding was done by hand, diligently and unceasingly because the seedlings could be choked. Sometimes each rice shoot would be individually groomed with a bamboo comb to clear away the insects. All the while, the farmers had to check and recheck water levels and make sure that the water didn't get too hot in the paddy fields in the summer sun. And when the rice ripened, farmers gathered all their friends and relatives in one burst, harvested it as quickly as possible so they could get a second crop in before the winter dry season began. Without rice, you didn't survive. If you wanted to be anyone in this part of China, you would have to have rice. It made the world go round. And they had a saying, no one who can rise before dawn, 360 days a year, fails to make his family rich. Rise before dawn, Work till you drop, 360 days a year, and you might be rich, or at least you'll feed your family. That's work. It's much like slavery. So what does it look like for God's future kingdom, the kingdom of God which Jesus has inaugurated and is coming? What does it look like for that to come into your workplace so that people see the future and it works? Now the answer is in verses 9 and 10. There are five instructions here, and as we look at them very briefly, I think you're going to notice one thing, which is it's not rocket science. Okay, it's not rocket science. Uh, here we are again, verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. That's one. To try to please them, two. 
not to talk back to them, three, not to steal from them, four, but to show that they can be fully trusted, five. Five qualities, five qualities that will make it look like the kingdom of God is coming. People will see the future in you, and it works. Firstly, be subject. They've got to be subject to their masters. Now, this, the original language has a, a, a sense that it's a voluntary choice. You can either choose to subject yourself to somebody else's authority or choose to buck the authority. And he's saying, it's your choice, but you can embrace a submissive attitude to the person who is leading you. Doesn't mean you have to be a doormat, doesn't mean you have to uh, grovel, but it is about letting the person in authority lead. Secondly, be pleasing, pleasant. It's a pleasure to employ you. Your boss sees you and is actually pleased to see you because she or he knows that you're going to work well. This word pleasing was often used of great people in the city who did some great kind of generous civic things and, 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 and served everybody. So this word is subtly elevating the slave's status. They too can be generous and pleasing with their work. Thirdly, uh, what does it say? Not to talk back to them. This is about being argumentative. It's about contradicting the boss whenever they say something. It means not always arguing, not always refusing to be told, not giving back chat, holding your tongue and being respectful. Fourthly, don't steal. Now this must have been a huge temptation. These slaves had hardly any property of their own and they're working for people who in some cases were fabulously wealthy. So the biggest temptation of all is to just skim a bit off the top for yourself, put it in your pocket. It's not talking about taking all the owner's furniture, it's talking about when you're down the market with a bit of money, buying some groceries, not just pocketing a little bit of the money and pretending that it cost more than it did. It's that kind of skimming off the top, pilfering. Now, that applies to us, doesn't it, in our work situations. We steal from our bosses when we go on Facebook at work and spend our time in leisure at work rather than actually working. We steal from our workplace when we take stuff home that doesn't belong to us. We steal from our bosses when we actually don't work very hard. So they paid us for 40 hours, but they got 20 hours worth. That's stealing. He says, don't do it. Work hard in the time you have. And fifthly, be reliable. Show that they can be fully trusted, he says. Absolute reliability. Absolute dependability. Absolute commitment. When you say you do something, you do your, you do your best to do it. Your word is your bond. You can be trusted. You're a rock. Five things. This is what God's grace practically looks like at work. A person who is humble, agreeable, teachable, honest, reliable. Humble, agreeable, teachable, honest, reliable. That's five of the seven dwarfs. Five qualities. Now notice, this isn't based on merit. Christian slaves are not commanded to be the best you know, you'd be the best slave out there. No, you just have to be godly. It's not based on circumstances. It's interesting. Paul doesn't give any qualifications based on how good or bad the boss is. 
You know, you can be like this, but if you've got a bad boss, well, you can tell him to get lost. It doesn't actually have any qualifications about how interesting or boring the work is. The work could be terribly boring. You still have to work like that. Christian slaves were called to exhibit these qualities, whatever the job, whatever the boss, whatever the season. And that's radical, because most people don't live like that. It shows depth and strength of character. So how does this connect with us in our place of work? Just think about your work for a moment. Maybe in your mind's eye, think about your boss, the person you have to report to. And then just ask this question. You ready? What is it like to lead me? What is it like to lead me? Are you a joy to lead? Is it a joy to have you on the team? Christian students, got some young people here at school and some slightly older people at university. What is it like to teach you? Is it a joy to have you in the class? See, we can bring fame to Jesus in the workplace or we can bring disrepute to Jesus in the workplace by the way we live. One of the first jobs I ever had was in uh, my gap year, and I worked at an incredible, incredibly dull civil service branch out in Surrey. And um, uh, my job actually was, there was so little work for me to do that they created a job for me, which was to read the minutes of the House of Commons, it's called Hansard, and highlight anything that was to do with occupational pensions so I spent half a day, every day, reading the minute, minutes of the House of Commons. And there's never anything in there about occupational pensions. I actually used to sit there like this and fall asleep at my desk. Another work environment that I was in, the one that was a bit like the office, uh, I hired a mate of mine to work for me. And he was a young Christian. And uh, then another job came up and a third friend of ours came and worked on the sales team. So there were three Christians in a team of 15 on this floor, and it was a very godless team. It was pretty wild. But then the next job came up. The boss came to us and said, are there any other people at your church we could employ? Not that we were brilliant. It's just that we had these qualities in increasing measure. See, it's not spectacular. It's not rocket science. It's just about being reliable and honest and hardworking and faithful and teachable and agreeable and humble. Grace at work. So important. And also very, very challenging. Because in ourselves, we don't have those qualities. We We need to get them. So where are we going to get the internal resources for this kind of transformation? Well, the answer is in verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the internal resources to be changed at work come from believing the gospel, from seeing that the grace of God appeared in history, in the person of Jesus, that he came for you, 
And that one day he's coming back for you, the blessed hope, when he brings in that new world order. And we're living in the present, looking forward to the sunrise. And God's future is dawning already in your workplace and in your home when you live like this. Because you're demonstrating that the future is here and it works. Our God was a faithful worker. Jesus worked the the job the Father gave him. He carried out the work that God the Father had assigned to him. And on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. I finished my work. He'd paid it all. Two episodes in particular in Jesus' life illustrate the nature of his work. What kind of workman was he? One was the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was there. His heart was breaking. He knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming. He'd been predicting it for some time. And for him, the cross was more than just shame and more than just intense suffering and death. It would mean severance from his father and a rupture in the cosmos that would tear apart the heart of God himself. And Jesus there, kneeling and praying and and sweating great drops of blood, actually said these words, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass away from me, but even so, let your will be done. And in Luke's Gospel, there's an interesting verse there that says, an angel appeared and strengthened him. Now, some of the early scribes and copyists of the Bible couldn't handle that verse. It seemed to take Jesus down a peg. Surely he didn't need to be strengthened. But it's original. Jesus was so low, so weak, struggling, in agony, it says, that an angel appeared and strengthened him to carry on with the task, to finish the job that he'd been given. And it says in 1 Corinthians that the head of Christ is God. The head of Messiah, Jesus, is God. There's even submission within God himself. The wonderful Trinitarian God we have, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's submission within it. Jesus is subjected. He subjected himself to God the Father, even though he's fully equal with him in every way. That's the kind of God you have, Christian friend. And finally, let me just point out that our God became a slave. Our God became a slave. Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave. A slave. Same word as used of slaves in Titus 2. Jesus made himself a slave so that you could be redeemed and made a priest king. We worship a servant king. We worship a slave God. So let's worship him now in our hearts and in prayer. And let's work for him this week, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're humbled by your word. Those of us who have to lead others or or manage people realize that we've not been the kind of bosses we should have been. And those of us that work for and report to other people realize we haven't exhibited these qualities. But we thank you that your word doesn't demand perfection overnight. It sets us a vision of a new way of life because the future is here and it works. Lord, uh, you've probably shown us some of the areas that we need to change. Thank you for that. That's the work of your spirit here in the room. May each one of us who follows Jesus be this week transformed 
into the kind of workers whose lives and whose work adorn the teaching, who make the teaching of the gospel attractive to a watching world. We ask, Father, we, we ask for your help in this. Hear us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.